The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Good morning, church family. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter number 3 for our text reading here today. Colossians chapter number 3 for our text reading. Before we dive into the message, I want to encourage you to pray for me. Uh, After the service, I'm going to get on an airplane and going to be heading to Australia to do a week of meetings. I'll be preaching there uh, for several days, several times each day, so I would covet your prayers. Uh, I'm thankful for the ministry that God's given our church family to serve overseas, uh, both our missions trips to El Salvador and other places in previous years, and then ministry opportunities like the one we have today. So I'd covet your prayers, appreciate your prayers, and I'm looking forward to how the Lord is going to use uh, this week of meetings just to further his work around the world. Well, we're currently in a sermon series entitled Metamorphosis, where we are studying Colossians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter number 4. And in these two chapters in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is addressing the specifics of a life transformed by Christ. Uh, Last week we saw where the Bible talks about how when Christ is working in us, it transforms our lifestyle. Uh, Next week we'll see how when Christ is working in us, it transforms our families and our marriage and our relationships and conversation. Uh, But today in this portion of the text, we're going to kind of unpack this idea of transforming and healing broken relationships, all right? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to unpack that from this passage, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the Lord's going to use it here in our second service. I'm thankful for the first service and the good group the Lord gave us, and I'm excited about what we're going to see take place in this second service as well. Uh, On your way in, you should have received one of our service programs. I hope you'll use that as we go through our Bible study this morning. If you're visiting with us, you are our honored guest, and we're so thankful for each and every one of you who have come today. We had several families visit in the early service, and if you're here today, we're so glad to have you. I want to encourage you, inside the connection card, uh, inside the service program, there's a connection card. If you take the opportunity to fill that out, we'd love to have a record of your attendance, as well as be able to just share with you upcoming opportunities and events that we have here in our church. So you'll have an opportunity to do that later on in the service. For those of you who are physically able, I'd like to invite you as we read from our text to stand at this time. And uh, we're going to read from Colossians chapter number 3. I'll start in verse number 11, and we will read down through verse number 17. Colossians chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 11. The scriptures say, There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Let me pause there for just a moment. In the church at Colossae, there was some division. Uh, There was some tension in the relationships. Uh, Some of the ethnic diversity led to a little bit of racism uh, that started to creep into the church. And so the Apostle Paul is addressing that in the church. He's saying, wait a second, now that we are in Christ, there's not Jews and Greeks as a separate thing. We are one in Christ. There is unity in Christ. He's saying there's not a difference between uh, those who are masters and those who are servants. In Christ, we are all one. And so he's addressing this division that took place in the church and that was causing some problems and some tension in this congregation. And so he says in verse number 12, therefore, because of this division, because of what's taking place, this relational tension, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, because you're in God, because you're in Christ, because you are now holy, he says, I want you to put on bowels of mercy. Now, this word bowels is kind of a weird word. Back in ancient times, it was believed that your emotions, your feelings came from your bowels, your innermost parts of the stomach. Today, we might say something like, you know, from the heart. But they said there needs to be these bowels, this heart of mercy. He goes on to say, and kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye, verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity, 
which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye also are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. This morning, we'd like to speak on this subject of transforming broken relationships. Transforming broken relationships. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our Bible study. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God that is seeking to restore a relationship with us as your children. Thank you for sending Jesus to this world to uh, connect us to you. Lord, I pray that just as we are experiencing connection and relationship with you, I pray that your spirit working through us would allow us to experience a harmony and unity with those people all around us. I pray that you would bless your word as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. As we dive in, have you ever had someone in your life that you struggled to get along with? Be honest, raise your hand. How many of you have ever had somebody in your life you've struggled to get along with? I didn't say point, I said raise your hand, all right? I point at your spouse, no. We all have times where we've struggled to get along with someone. About three years ago, um, it was my wife's birthday. And leading up to her birthday, her and the kids had been talking about getting a dog. And every time they'd bring it up, they'd say, Dad, we need to get a dog. And man, we, they were looking online for different dogs they could have. And I just kept brushing it off. I kept saying, I don't know if we're ready for a dog. I don't know if that's something that we want to do. And so I just kind of kept pushing it aside. And every time they'd ask, I'd kind of say, well, maybe now is not a good time. And, and that was kind of how it went for several months uh, until Jenny's birthday. On Jenny's birthday, I noticed that, that there was a certain point where on her birthday, she just kind of disappeared. I couldn't find her anywhere. I was like, man, what's going on? And uh, she snuck out of the home. In fact, she took the kids with her and just, they like vanished. I was like, man, where, where'd they go? Uh, about an hour and a half later, they came home with a little puppy in their arms. And I was like, no, you didn't, you know? And sure enough, they had gotten a little multi, a Maltese and poodle mix, a multi-poo, little, little white, little fluffy little dog. And uh, they had brought that home. And, and I'll be honest, at first, you know, I don't know if we were that great of friends, but eventually she grew on me and we became just little pals. And she's a great little dog. And uh, we loved having her around. And she's real calm and she doesn't bark a whole lot. Unless, you know, unless maybe visitors come over, guests come over, then every once in a while she'll get excited to see some new friends and things like that. But for the most part, she's just very relaxed, very laid back, you know, type of puppy. And she's just, she's been great. Well, about two months ago, uh, my brother got a dog for his kids and he did not get a little dog. He, he got a puppy, but that puppy is growing crazy fast. And uh, her name is Ruby. And so we got Sophie and Ruby. And, and one day we were talking and we, were th we said to our other's man, I think, I think Sophie and Ruby, they need, to meet, they need to meet each other. I mean, after all, they are cousins. And so it's important that they get to know each other. And uh, so we thought we'd introduce them. And I don't know what it is, but for whatever, for whatever reason, uh, Sophie ha is not a big fan of Ruby right now. I don't know if it's because Ruby's a puppy. I don't know what's going on. But she is, she is not a big fan. And so the other day I was taking a video. I want you to see this, all right, for yourselves. Guys, you got that up there somewhere, and I think they're going to throw this on the screen. So Ruby's down here climbing up, little puppy getting big. Sophie's right there just sitting there trying to mind her own business. Finally, she just gives up. She's like, I'm out of here, you know. Uh, she wasn't a huge fan of the little puppy. You know, here's the, here's the reality is, is simply this. Now, relationships are not easy, even for dogs, all right? They're, they're not easy, but how many of you have noticed Man, relationships in general are kind of hard. How many of you know? How many of you struggle maybe in certain relationships at work? Uh, you struggle with relationships in your family? How many, some of you maybe even struggle with relationships 
in your own marriage. And sometimes it's difficult just to have a, you know, the type of relationship God wants us to have with our spouse. And the reality is this, relationships can be very, very difficult. And, and so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about what the scriptures say about transforming broken relationships. So we're just going to dive right in. Notice what the Bible says in verses number 12 down through verses number 14. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is going to share a list of very important qualities that are necessary to healing a broken relationship. And so that leads us to our first point of the message today, and that is simply this. Number one, the essential qualities of a transformed relationship. The essential qualities of a transformed relationship. And then starting in verses number 12 down through verses number 14, the Apostle Paul is going to list these essential qualities. He's saying if you want to see restoration take place in a relationship, if you want to see uh, reconciliation take place in, in, a, in a family relationship or in a church relationship, these are the qualities that the Spirit of God wants to work through you in order to bring harmony and unity to that relationship. So let's just dive right in. Notice the first thing that's mentioned here in verse number 12 is mercy. Mercy. If we're going to see a relationship that is brought back together, where there is restoration in that relationship, number one, it's going to take mercy. So what is mercy? Mercy is simply this. It is not giving someone the consequences of what they deserve. Not giving somebody the negative consequences that their actions deserve. And that's a hard thing to do. We've all had people who have done us wrong. We have all had individuals who didn't do right by us, who sinned against us. And yet the first thing that the Apostle Paul is going to mention, if we're going to see these relationships healed, if we're going to see restoration in our broken relationships, in these areas of our life where there's tension with other people, whether it's at work or in our homes or in our marriage, the first quality that the Apostle Paul addresses is this thing of mercy. The Bible says in Psalms 100 verse 5, it says, The Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting. How many of you are thankful that God's mercy never stops? His mercy keeps, keeps flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. His mercy is everlasting. And so because we get to continually experience God's mercy, we are challenged to allow the Spirit of God to extend mercy to those who have done us wrong. There might be somebody in this room, and you need to extend some mercy to somebody at your workplace. It might be that the Spirit of God is leading you to extend mercy to a family member, or to somebody in this church, the first thing that needs to be prevalent in the believer's life is mercy. We need to be merciful to those who have done us wrong. You say, but man, I don't know that I can do that to somebody who said this to me, or who did that to me. I don't know if I can extend mercy to somebody who's done me wrong. Here's the truth. The only reason we are called to extend mercy is because God understands that in this broken and sinful world, people are going to sin against us. And because that is a reality of the world in which we live, mercy needs to be the first response when someone does us wrong, when someone sins against us. So we're called to extend this quality of mercy. But that's not the only thing that's mentioned. Let's keep reading. Notice what else it says in verse number 12. Not only are we supposed to put on mercy and extend mercy, but the next word is kindness. Kindness. It's very easy to extend kindness to people who have been kind to us. In fact, a lot of times kindness is transactional. I'm kind to somebody who's kind to me. But I want to remind you that that doesn't take the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish. It doesn't take God's power to extend kindness to those who have been kind to us first. But that's what, not what this passage is saying. It's saying that we are to be kind to those who have done us wrong. To those that there's friction and tension with. Those of us who maybe we don't have strong relationships for one reason or another. The God's word is challenging us what? 
to extend kindness to those individuals. Psalms chapter number 100, I'm sorry, Luke chapter number 6 says this, For the Lord is kind, notice this, unto the unthankful and to the evil. How many of you are thankful that God was kind to us at our worst? When we were evil, when we were rebelling against Him, the Bible says that God is kind to us even when we're at our worst. And that's what we're being called to. If we're going to see restoration take place in these relationships, it's going to mean we need to extend kindness to those who don't deserve it. If we're going to see the broken relationships brought back into harmony, it means extending kindness when that person doesn't deserve it, when they have not earned it, and they're not being kind in return. We see mercy and kindness. Notice the next Next concept we see in verse number 12, it says, and humbleness of mind. These are the essential qualities of a transformed relationship. Notice this, humility, humility. Now, when we talk about humility, this is a concept that often is misunderstood in our churches. When we tend to think about humility, the first place our mind tends to go is we think humility is when, um, you know, I just think bad about myself and I don't think I'm no good or something like that. And we tend to get that idea of what humility is. And conversely, when we think about pride, we think about somebody who thinks they're better than everybody else and they think they're superior and they just think, you know, they've got so much on somebody else. And so we tend to have this idea that that is pride and this is humility. But can I remind you of something? Pride is not just somebody thinking they're better than somebody else. Pride is not just people thinking that they're superior to other people in the room. You see, pride is not just thinking better about yourself. You don't realize pride can also be when you're thinking about yourself and you think, man, I'm nothing, I'm no good, I'm inferior, I'm worthless. Both of those are expressions of pride. Anytime you interpret a situation in a way that makes you feel superior or inferior, that is pride. Anytime you interpret a situation or circumstances and it makes you think, man, I, man it makes me feel like oh, I'm more than or I'm less than, it makes you view yourself as being better or worse. You see, pride is not just thinking you're better. Pride is when you just are focused on yourself and you're thinking about yourself and you're interpreting situations and circumstances through the lens of how it makes me feel or how it makes me, makes me viewed. Uh, maybe you've done this before. I know I've been in situations where I'll see something on Facebook, or I'll overhear somebody saying something, or somebody will be talking to me, and my brain does this weird thing where it'll take all that information and twist it all up, and all of a sudden, before I know it, I interpret that information as being, man, if they think that, then that must mean this, which means they must think this about me. You ever done this before? You overhear what somebody's saying, you see something on Facebook, it has nothing to do with you, it has nothing to do with your situation, and all of a sudden the first thing you do is you think, man, what, what is, is that about me? <laughs> are they upset with me? Or, and all of a sudden it causes you to feel bad about yourself, it causes you to view yourself negatively. Anytime you insert an I, you insert self into a situation, you look at a situation and think, man, it causes me to view myself this way or view myself that way or feel this way about myself or feel that way about myself. Anytime you insert self into a circumstance or situation, that is pride creeping up in your life. That happened to me even this week, and I, I'm ashamed to even admit it. Somebody was talking to me about something, and as they were talking to me, my brain started going into hyperdrive. I'm thinking, man, if they think that, and they probably think this and those things. And that probably means that they think that about me. And somehow I had taken this very just basic conversation and inserted my ego and my identity right into the middle of that conversation that wasn't even about me. You guys ever do this before? Just me? And all of a sudden you take something that's not about you and you make it about you. That's pride expressing itself. And so humility is the opposite of that. You see, uh, humility is not 
thinking less of, it's, it's not, you know, thinking less of yourself. It's not this idea of, oh, I've got to think that I'm a nobody, and I'm awful, and I'm horrible, and that's humility. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. You see the difference? It's when you stop inserting a sense of I or a sense of ego into every circumstance and every situation. Can I say this? And I'm trying to be nice. It's not always about you. Every time you see something on Facebook, it's not all, it doesn't have to be about you. You don't have to assert yourself. Oh, well, is that, what do they think about me? Is it, man, they must, if they're saying that, then they must think that about it's, really, Sometimes we'll walk through life. And we'll think about, man, what are, I, I don't know what this person's thinking about me. What's that th- person thinking about me? Can, can I just let you in on a little secret? Nobody's thinking about you. <laughs> You're not that important. And yet we walk through this life thinking, I wonder what they think about me, and I wonder what they're saying about me, and I wonder what... They're not. <laughs> hey, to bust your bubble. It's really not all about you. But that's what pride does. Pride makes it all about me. And what they're saying has to, have, it has to affect how I feel about myself or how I view myself or how they view, my, view me or how they feel about me. And we, we insert our ego into everything. And humility does the opposite. Humility doesn't insert themselves into it. Humility is just like, it's just about Jesus, about focusing on Jesus and focusing on others. That's humility. It's not thinking you're horrible. It's just, it's just thinking about yourself just just less. It's not always about you. It's not inserting yourself into every situation and interpreting, you know, you as being the center of it all. Don't make it all about you, because it's not. Here, number three. I want you to notice the next thing we see here. What are these essential qualities to a transformed relationship? Mercy. Man, just forget, you know, just not giving people the consequences they deserve. Kindness, being kind to those who have not earned it. Humility. Don't make your, don't make it all about you. There's a lot of friction in our relationships because we always make it about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about others. Number four, notice the next thing you're going to see here in this verse, in verse 12. Put on meekness. Put on meekness. Uh, Meekness is this idea of controlling your strengths. Meekness, controlling your strengths. It's an idea of gentleness in our lives. Here's the reality. Uh, some of you, you're really smart, and others of you are really strong, and others of you have gifts and abilities and talents and strengths. And so what meekness is, is it's taking your strengths, and it's taking your abilities, and not using them to hurt others. Uh, for example, Some of you get into a situation and all of a sudden, you know that in that situation, you could make a point. You ever get there before? All of a sudden something happens and you're like, ooh, I could really burn them with this. You know, you get it all, yeah. You're about to type that up on, you know, email or on Facebook. You're like, oh, this will be a zinger. This will get them. Because you know, man, I got the upper hand on this one, you know. And you just know if I just said this, mm, that would just put them in their place. And so there's this, there's this idea that you could, you could I'm a, I could really make a point. You see, as a Christian, you have an opportunity. Oftentimes, you're going to have to choose between making a point and making a difference. And loving people and serving them. See, what meekness does is even when it has the opportunity to make a point, it takes its strength and it puts it under control. It controls its strength. Um, meekness would cause you, when you, you ever have a situation where, you're, where you just want to say, oh, I told you so. I, I knew this was going to happen. I told you so. See, meekness is going to cause you to step back and not have to point that out. Because well, you're taking your strength and you're controlling it. It's not always about making a point. It's not always about telling, you know, saying, I told you so. It's not always pointing out where they're wrong and you were right. This is meekness. It's strength under control. It's gentleness. One of the reasons why there is friction in our relationships is because there's very little meekness. There's very little gentleness. 
We always want to point out how we're right, and we always want to zing somebody who's different than us, and we always want to make somebody feel like they're less than it. And meekness is taking all that strength and all that ability, and it's controlling it with a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of temperance. Just because you could make a point, or just because you could get somebody back, or just because you could say, I told you so, you don't. Because meekness and gentleness is flowing through your life. Let's keep reading. Notice what else it says here. What are these essential qualities to harmony and unity within a relationship? What are those things that are going to bring reconciliation and restoration to a relationship? Let's keep reading. Notice what it says. It says, meekness and long-suffering forbearing one another. These two are kind of similar. Long-suffering and forbearance. Uh, Long-suffering is a little bit like what it sounds like. To be long-suffering means that in a relationship, you're willing to suffer long for that relationship. It's this idea of just being really patient. The reality is if you've been married for any length of time, there's been moments where you've been hurt. And to be married is a, it's hard and it's difficult, and you've had to suffer through some things. Now, I do think it's important to caveat this. I am not saying that if you are in a physically abusive relationship, you need to continue to allow that person to physically abuse you, all right? Wisdom would say remove yourself from a situation where there's that physical abuse. This is talking about the posture of our heart toward individuals, that we don't just jet and quit on a relationship just because it's hard, just because it hurts, just because it's a little difficult. No, if we're going to see restoration, reconciliation happen, it's going to involve some long-suffering. How many of you are thankful that Christ was willing to suffer long for our salvation? And as Christ has done that for us, he wants to do that through us toward difficult people in our lives. This word forbearance, this, is, this just means to bear with. Forbearance. All of us are going to have times we're going to have to bear with people's idiosyncrasies. We're going to have to bear with their humanity. We're going to have to bear with the fact that sometimes the people in our lives are eccentric. They're weird. How many of you, after this long of living, recognize that all of us are a little weird in our own ways? How many of you are willing to admit that? You know, we've all got areas where we're weird, you know? And, and you're, if you raised your hand, I get it. You know, if you're sitting here and you're like, I don't think I'm weird. You're the weirdest, all right? We're all, we've all got idiosyncrasies. I've got idiosyncrasies. You've got idiosyncrasies. We all are, in our own ways, we're weird. Some of us are eccentric. We're different. And bearing with that is saying, you know what? Just because somebody's a little different than I am, just because their humanity shows on occasions, just because they're not perfect or they don't do things exactly like I do, I'm still going to bear with them. I'm going to be patient with their humanity. I'm going to be patient with the fact that they're not perfect. There's this idea of forbearance. Don't throw the picture up yet, guys. I'm going to save it for just a second. But I, uh, when I, it was my 10th year anniversary. All right, I'll cue you up when it's time to show it. But it was our 10th year anniversary, and I'd been telling Jenny, hey, we're going to do something really big for our 10th year anniversary. It's going to be awesome. And I'd been building it up for about 18 months leading up to it. And it was a really busy season in our lives and in the lives of the church. And so I'd been talking about how we were going to go someplace cool. I thought maybe we could, you know, go overseas and take a little trip for our 10th year anniversary. And I was really excited about it. And things just got really busy. And I was telling the first hour, I honestly, Honestly, I think we ended up at like Outback Steakhouse or like, I don't know, it was Olive Garden or something. It was, a, you know, that's about the extent of where we ended up, you know, for our 10-year anniversary. It was, it was really exciting. And so then after that, I realized, oh man, I didn't come through. And I kept telling her, on our 15th anniversary, on our 15th anniversary, we're going to do something really, really cool. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so uh, as we were leading up to our 15th anniversary, I was online looking for deals and the Lord just gave us this incredible deal. It was so awesome. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, man, I've, I've got to take advantage of this. It was just an incredibly, incredibly great price. And so I'd booked an all-inclusive kind of trip to Italy. And so this was last year, and we were going to go to Rome, and we were going to go to, I think, uh, 
uh, Venice and some other places. And so we had just a great time. And for about a week and a half, we got to tour Italy and go to all these really neat places and, and eat all this really good food. And it was just an awesome time on the left. That was a Pantheon. That building is over 2,000 years old. It's a public building that still gets used today. And it was built over 2,000 years ago. Uh, in the middle is the Trevi Fountains. And maybe some of you have seen on some movies. You're supposed to you know, put a coin in and your wishes come true and uh, those types of things. Of course, Leaning Tower Pisa. And, and so we got to go and visit all these really cool places and it was a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things I didn't realize though when you go to Italy is uh, sometimes people will only take um, Italian money and they don't use American currency. And so when you're in the little shops, you, you kind of need that. And, and I hadn't exchanged any funds before I went. And so I was looking for a place where we could exchange the currency. And, and sure enough, as I was walking uh, down one of the roads, I saw a little, a little, little shack a type, a little building type thing where they would do exchange of money. And so I thought, you know, I'm gonna get some currency. That way we can, you know, get, take care of some things in, in this country. So I went and I needed like $50. And I took my $50, I was gonna exchange it. And by the time it was all said and done, I was a little confused because of the currency rates and things. They gave me $50 worth of Italian money, but it literally cost me like $45 in fees in order to do that. I made $95 for $50 worth of currency. And I was like walking away, and I didn't even fully understand it until I was walking away. I was like, I think I just got ripped off, all right? Not the brightest guy in the world, but I was pretty sure, you know, this was not going to... My wife's getting a little, she's a little perturbed. I mean, how, why is it that you're literally, <laughs> she, she was joking. You literally spent $2 so you could get $1. That was, that was real bright, you know. I was like, well, we had to have it, you know, make it work. And so we were walking along. We went and visited these different places. We were taking pictures, kind of having a good time as we went along. We got back in the car. We are getting ready to drive back uh, to our hotel was. And as she was leaving, my wife's real sharp about this. And she says, oh, she says, just make sure you got your passport. It was in my pocket. And, uh started reaching in all my pockets. I'm like, I don't know where my passport is. She's like, but you had it when you got out of the car. I was like, I did, but it's not there anymore. And she said, well, look around for it. I'm looking around. Couldn't find my passport anywhere. We're looking around the car, looking in the car, looking through our bags, and my passport is absolutely nowhere to be seen. And you could just see it in my wife's eyes. I mean, she's starting to get a little bit perturbed. She's like, what in the world? You can't find your passport? She's starting to have visions, you know, of her having to fly home, and I'm stuck in Italy, you know, because I can't get home because I don't have my passport. And so I was like, well, maybe we just re-step our, our, our steps throughout the day. And so we started walking everywhere that we had been that day. We stopped at a little coffee shop, and we stopped at a couple of the tourist places. Places, and we were looking everywhere for maybe where this passport would have fallen out. And we're retracing our steps all the way back to where that little currency exchange place was. And I walked up and I, I said, I said, I don't, you, happen to, you happen to see a passport anywhere? And they're like, no, you know, I don't, haven't, haven't seen anything. I said, could you just look around? You know, it's got to be somewhere. And all of a sudden they, they pull out and they're like, oh, is this it? I was like, yeah, that's it. That's my passport. In the currency exchange, in order to do it, you have to show them, you know, an ID and a passport. And somehow they had taken my passport and conveniently never gave it back to me. And so sure enough, I was able to get it. And I remember I got it. I turned around, look at my wife, and she was giving me the look of forbearance. <laughs> how many of you know what I, how many of you, you have your spouse, you ever gotten that look of forbearance, you know, just like that, I, that look of I want to kill you, but I won't. You know that look. You ever gotten that one before, all right? Forbearance. Dealing with the humanity of someone else's weaknesses. We've, we've all been there before. And that's what it's talking about. To be willing to suffer long at the expense of somebody else's humanity. To be willing to forbear. That's what it's talking about. But it doesn't stop there. Let's keep reading in verse number 13. It's forbearing one another. Notice this and forgiving one another. It says, it goes on, if any of you have quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. If you want to experience a relationship that's brought back to a place of harmony and unity, it's going to involve a whole lot of forgiveness. Forgiveness. The reality is, it's very easy to hold on to hurt. It's very easy to hold on to anger. It's very easy to hold on to bitterness. And we're called by the Spirit of God just like Christ forgave us, just like Christ pardoned us. We are supposed to forgive those who have hurt 
us, to pardon them, to set them free. And these are the essential qualities. If you're struggling to have vibrant, dynamic, you know, relationships in your life, oftentimes the reason we struggle is because these qualities are not a part of our interactions. We're not constantly being merciful and kind and humble and meek and long-suffering and forbearing and forgiving. But this is exactly what God calls us to if we're going to keep our relationships strong in our life. But he doesn't stop. Let's keep reading. Notice what it says here. It says in verse 14, and above all. This is the, it's like the Apostle Paul is saying, if you get nothing else, get this. This is the most important. This is the priority. Above all, verse 14, put on charity. The word charity is, is the word for unconditional love, which is the bond of perfectness. Literally, the Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying, this is, this is the most important of all of these things, unconditional love. You see, all of us can love those when they do right by us. There's not a person in this room who struggles to love people who are good to them. You see, most of us, whether we want to or not, we have this internal list of all the things somebody has to do to deserve our love. If my husband does duh, 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 then I'll love him. If my coworkers do A, B, C, D, then I'll show them love. If people in my church, and we have lists for all of our relationships, and the lists are different. Our list for church people is different than the list we have for our people we work with. And the people we work with, it's a different list than our spouse. And we have a different list for our kids, but it is human nature. It is our propensity to have a list of things people have to do in order for us to demonstrate love toward them. And what Jesus is reminding us here, he's saying, listen, I want you to take the list, to crumple it up, and throw it away. Because for a believer, there should be no conditions attached to our love. Unconditional love, charity. And this is what the Spirit of God wants to do through you. This is where Paul's saying, this is the most important. This is, this is the priority. Unconditional conditional love. But, but here's the reality. We're not going to be able to love those around us in what I like to call a, you know, kind of a horizontal way that in our horizontal relationships, our horizontal relationships with work people, at church people, with our family, and these type of things. If we're not experiencing all the love, all the admiration, all the affection from our Heavenly Father— but when we are experiencing that kind of in a vertical way, then we are free to love those horizontally and we don't need anything in return because our soul is already full. The problem is so many of us are not full on God's love. And so we enter into all of our relationships trying to get fulfillment, trying to get satisfaction, trying to get affirmation, trying to get adoration. And so we place all these conditions on our spouses, our children, our pastors, the people we go to church with. We have this list because we need these people to do the things on our list in order for us to be okay. But when we are getting everything that we need from Christ... We are free and liberated to enter into those relationships not needing anything from them. We're free to throw away the list and allow Christ's love to overflow to those individuals. And that is charity. When there are times in my life where I can't love unconditionally, when there are times in my life, and I've been there, where I can't show grace, toward people who have done me wrong or who have hurt me. All that tells me is I'm not experiencing everything from God that he has for me in my relationship with him. What it reveals to me is I've made a list for this person, for this relationship that I need to have done in order for me to be okay in my soul. And so it's not there's something wrong with them. We live in a broken, sinful world. Your spouse is never going to be perfect. The people you go to church with are never going to be perfect. Your pastors are never going to be perfect. 
Your coworkers are never gonna be perfect. Your children are never gonna be perfect. Every one of those relationships will let you down. And some of them will let you down profoundly. And I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to simply remind you that you have something better. You have the opportunity to experience everything your soul craves in your relationship with God. And so as you are experiencing his love, you can extend it to those around you. And when we can't extend it, what that reveals is we're not fully experiencing it from God. That's what it says. That there is something we're not experiencing in our relationship with God that he has for us. And he's calling us back to deeper relationship with him. A deeper enjoyment of his spirit. Because when we have that, we can experience his love. Notice the phrase it uses here, which is the bond of perfectness. The Bible says, you get this down, and he's like, that's spiritual maturity at its peak. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's spiritual, like, all-star right there. It's like, the, it's like the bond of perfection. The bond of spiritual perfection is not how much of the Bible you have memorized or how much Bible trivia you know, you know, or how many standards that you have, how many, you know, good works you do. Now, you want to know what the ultimate is? When you can love the unlovable. That's the goal. When you can love those who don't deserve it. When you can pour out affection on those that have not earned it. That is when we know we're growing in spiritual maturity. All right? The Bible says in Psalms 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. In unity. So, let's keep moving. I, we see, first of all, those were the essential qualities of a transformed relationship. All of these qualities. That's what Christ wants to do through us. But let's keep reading for a moment. I want you to see here, in the next couple of verses, in verses number 15 and verses number 16, you're going to see an interesting word. Notice it there in verse number 15. It says, And let... You're going to see it again in verse number 16. It says, and let. What are these lets? And, and the reason I bring this up is to simply say this. Sometimes we might read a list like this in the scriptures, and we can be like, how in the world am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to be merciful and meek and humble and forgiving and long-suffering and unconditional love these people? I don't know how to do it. And you, there might be somebody here who says, you know, if you knew what they said to me, if you knew what they did to me, if you knew how they treated me, if you knew how they hurt me, how can I do that? How is that even possible? And this passage is going to address that in those two verses. How? How do we do this when we don't feel like doing it? This leads us to the second point of our message today, and that is this, the final point. I want you to see the, the two empowering principles of a transformed relationship. The empowering principles of a transformed relationship. There are two principles here in these two verses that God says these will strengthen your ability to extend these qualities. These will empower you to do these things. This will give you the grace to actually be merciful and forgiving and loving to those who, don't, who have not earned it. And this is, these are these empowering principles. Let me give you the two. Notice, first of all, verse 15. It says, and let the peace of God rule. Let the peace of God rule rule. What it's saying here is let God's peace and every one of you who are saved, you as a birthright have been given the peace of God. You have been given a peace that passes understanding. I'm not saying all of you are experiencing it, and I'm not saying all of you are enjoying it, and I'm not saying all of you are basking in it, but what I am saying, it's available to every person who is in Christ. It's available to you to have this peace that passes understanding. And this passage says, let that peace rule. Let it reign in your life. Let it control your life. But here's the tension, right? Most of us are tempted to let frustration rule our hearts. How many of you have ever been ruled by your frustrations? You've let your frustrations control you. 
You've let your frustrations reign over your life, control your life, rule over your life. We let frustration rule. Others of us were tempted to let our aggravations rule our life and control our life. I'm frustrated. I'm aggravated. For others of us, we let our resentment rule and reign and control our behaviors and control our actions. We let bitterness and anger and hurt and pain rule and drive and control and reign over our lives and God is saying no if you want to see unity brought back to a relationship you've got to let peace rule you've got to let the peace of God reign in your heart you've got to experience so much peace from the heavenlies that you don't need it in the earthly realm because your soul is such at peace with what God is doing in your heart that regardless of what's happening around you you're okay Because the peace of God is ruling. The peace of God is reigning. It's in control. See, some of you, you're so irritated and you're so frustrated and you're so bitter and angry and resentful because these things aren't happening and it controls how you live and it controls your behavior and it controls your actions. And God's like, no, I got something better. I want you, to, I want you not to find peace in, in how this person behaves. I don't want you to look for peace in how that person behaves. Don't look for peace in your situation. Don't le- look for peace in your circumstances. Look for peace in your relationship with me. Find peace there. And you can enter into your relationship as a servant of Christ. Let God's peace rule. Let his peace control. Even when somebody's not treating you right, can I remind you the promise that you, can, you still have access to all the peace God makes available? It's nice when people treat us right. It makes us feel comfortable. But God's giving you something stronger. He gives you a peace that passeth understanding. He gives you an ability to experience peace even when things are not going your way. It's not that, it's not that those things are bad, getting peace from this person or that person. It's just, a, it's just a little unstable. But man, when you're experiencing peace from God, man, that, that can take you through any storm and that can take you through any difficulty. And I want to encourage you to anchor your hope peace, not in somebody's behavior, not in a circumstance, but to anchor your peace into a God who loves you and enjoy and experience that peace in your ongoing relationship with him. Let the peace of God rule. But that's not the only let that we see in this passage. Notice the second let, verse 16. Not only let the peace of God rule, but notice secondly in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How are we going to extend these qualities of forgiveness and mercy and love by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly? As we feast on God's word, as we feast on his promises, as we allow his principles and precepts to saturate our mind and saturate our emotions. See, what, what most of us want to do is we want to saturate our heart and mind and what that person's doing wrong. And we saturate our thinking and how they hurt us and how they're not doing right by us. And that's what's controlling our thinking. That's what we're saturating our minds in. That's what we're thinking about. And this passage says, no, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Don't don't dwell on your frustrations and your aggravations and your bitterness and your pain and your gut. No, focus on the word of Christ. Focus on his promises. Focus on his precepts. Focus on him And what this does is it stirs up our ability to extend all these qualities that we just read about a moment ago. You see, peace and unity are the byproducts of allowing Christ to be the most important thing in your life. When you just let Christ, your relationship with him, enjoying him, embracing him, and experiencing all the peace and all the fruit of the spirit that he makes available to you, the byproduct is unity. The byproduct is restoration. The byproduct is reconciliation. There is harmony when each of us get our eyes off of each other and onto Christ. That is where the victory is found. Matthew chapter number five, verse nine says this, blessed are the peacemakers. That word blessed means happy. When you become an agent of this peace, God says you're happier. When you go, when you look to make peace, there's more joy. There's a special uh, blessing, a a joy, a happiness. Why? For they should be called the children of God. There's a reason why in this passage the word let is used two times. This is not something that you got to make happen. 
you're not going to fix anybody. Uh, some of you have been married for a lot of years, and some of you have tried to fix your spouse. I just, I, I, I want to I just let you in on a little secret. You ain't going to do it. You're not. You're not going to fix them. You're not going to change them. If they're going to change, it'll be God. But you're not going to be able to. So I'm going to give you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of. I'll give you a little of a blessing here. Stop trying. Seriously. Let the peace of God reign. Let God do His work. Just allow Him to do what only He can do. Surrender, and let God do through you. Surrender. See, God wants to do this in your life. He's trying to do this through your life. He's trying to be an agent of reconciliation, but we fight against it. But when we surrender and say, God, you do what you can do. Just let this happen through me. Let forgiveness and mercy, let this love flow through me. Guess what? God wants to, he wants to. That's why God says, let this happen. Allow it. Surrender to it. Because that's what God wants to do in and through your life. It was several years ago before we moved to this property. We were in the little chapel on Clinton Boulevard. I was preaching, and as I was preaching, in the back doors walked a man that I had never seen before. He sat down, and he began to listen to the message. Afterwards, I went up to him. I asked him his name. He told me his name was John, and he began to tell me about his, his life. And as he was telling me a little bit of his story, the reality is he had had a, he had had a really rough past. Uh, he had been married at a young age and had kids and somewhere life just got really crazy for him and he ended up on drugs. In fact, the drugs got so bad in his life, kind of overwhelmed his life to the place where they totally took over. It wasn't long before he left his family and his wife eventually divorced him. He was getting to the place where he was practically living on the streets. He had hit rock bottom and thought maybe church could provide some answers. He came, and week after week, he began to come, and over the time, just spending, allowing the word of Christ to dwell in him richly, through Bible studies and discipleship, he began to grow in grace. God began to do a transformational work in his heart and his life, and week after week, he's faithful to church, month after month, involved in Bible studies and discipleship. It was about six months after he began coming, I noticed that one day he walked in and sat down, and, and a lady came and sat next to him. I'd never seen this lady before. I didn't know who she was. The next week, the same thing happened. The same lady came, sat next to him. Third week, this happened. The same lady came, sat back. I started to scratch my head. I'm just wondering, who is this person that's sitting with, with this guy? And uh, after the service, John came to me. He said, hey, Pastor, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been this lady that's been coming with me to church. I said, yeah, I noticed. He said, her name's Mary, and uh, it's my ex-wife. He said, you know what? God's been doing such a work in my life these last several months. He said, the Lord put it on my heart to reach out, and she's been a little tentative, but she decided she would come with me to church. I remember as the year went by, how they just continued to come to church, and God began to grow their relationship. And One of the neatest experiences I've ever had in my life is the day where I got to stand up on a platform and lead in a ceremony to remarry them. It was so cool. God had brought reconciliation to a situation that both of them had felt was utterly and completely destroyed. And it happened because rather than letting their past rule, rather than letting frustration rule, rather than letting hurt rule, they simply allowed God's peace to rule and allowed and let the word of Christ just cleanse them from the inside out. And when that happened, all of a sudden, the mercy could flow, and the forgiveness could flow, and the unconditional love could flow, and the long-suffering and the forbearance could just begin to flow from their life, which leads me with kind of our takeaway. And if you get nothing else, I hope you'll get this, and that's simply this statement. Let, let God, something he wants to do already, just allow it, surrender to it, let God restore the ruined relationship. Let God restore the ruined relationship. I don't know where the ruined relationship is for you. Maybe it's in a family relationship. Maybe it's here in this church. Maybe it's somebody who used to come to the church. Maybe it's with a spouse. But I want to encourage you to allow God to work these things through you, to work his forgiveness, to work his mercy, to work his unconditional love through your life. Surrender to it. Allow God to be sovereign in these situations. 
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.